When I first came to our church to work as the singles minister, Shirley Hansel chaired the singles ministry council, and so Shirley and I worked closely together. As a result, I got to know Shirley's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Hansel. Now, Mr. Hansel had been an engineer over at Armco Steel, and so when he began exhibiting the symptoms of Alzheimer's, Mr. Hansel was very reluctant to give up any control over his own life. He was extremely organized, and he was mobilized for any situation. He had great dignity. And if Shirley took his car keys away, well, Mr. Hansel might just decide, well, if he wants to get over to the golf club, he'll just get on his riding lawnmower and drive over there. He, he was that kind of thinking. But one of my favorite stories about Mr. Hansel was the day that he ended up at the emergency room. The nurse who was doing the intake was trying to assess his mental state that day, trying to figure out if Mr. Hansel was able to track what was going on. Did he understand? Did he even know where he was? And, you know, the hospital can be disorienting. And so the nurse got right down in front of his face, and she said, Mr. Hansel, do you know where you are? And he said, well, yes, I do. And she said, well, Mr. Hansel, where are you? And he said, I am right in front of your face. There are times in our lives when we see what is going on, but we don't quite understand. In her book, How to Live, Judith Valente writes about a time when she thought she was able to see. She was a young reporter writing stories for the Dallas Times Herald when Judith went out on an assignment to write a story about a local man who had played Santa Claus for over 10,000 children. As she interviewed him, she observed how patient he was with the children, how jovial he appeared, such delight. And during the interview with her, he described how much he loved his own children who were now grown and, and he just kind of exuded joy. Well, about 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve, Judith's phone rang, and it was Santa. Well, I mean, it was the man named Joe who had been such a great Santa's helper in Dallas for all those kids, and he was in tears. He told Judith that he really appreciated the story she had written in the paper and all the great things she had said about him, but the truth was, he was divorced and his kids didn't speak to him and he was spending Christmas again this year alone. After dressing up throughout December as Santa and volunteering to visit kids in hospitals and stores, he was sleeping in his, in his car. And when the Christmas season came to an end, the depression just came flooding in and he didn't think he had any reason left to live. Well, Judith was shocked. Here she was, a trained observer of human behavior, a reporter, and she wondered, how could I have interviewed him and missed all of this? How did I misread him? How did I see joy where deep pain clearly resided in the wrinkles of a man's face? She quickly telephoned her family to say that she would be late for Christmas Eve, and she drove over and found the man in his car and insisted that he join her and her family for the holidays. He refused. But Judas said that that year, the best gift that she got 
was that she woke up. She began to see beyond what her eyes first saw. And a year later, there was a happy ending because she learned that Joe, Santa, had a new real job and was able to support himself again. Today's gospel lesson from Mark describes how we sometimes see, but we don't quite see. Jesus heals the blind man, but it doesn't happen instantly. In this story, it happens slowly in stages like peeling back the layers of an onion. Jesus makes a first attempt, taking the blind man by the hand, spitting some saliva on his fingers, and then touching the man's eyes. And then Jesus says, can you see anything? And the man can see, but it's still fuzzy. It's still blurry. And he says, well, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. This story comes in a strategic place in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has completed his earthly ministry. He's recruited his disciples. He's taught them about God's radical love. He's fed the 5,000. And now Jesus is about to turn and head toward the cross. And he says to the disciples, do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes, but you fail to see? The stained glass window features this story about the healing of a blind man because all of us who call ourselves disciples fail to fully comprehend what it means to follow this one named Jesus. Three times in this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus will tell them, I must suffer, I must go to the cross, and then I will rise again. And three times, they just don't get it. I can remember times in my own life when I longed to see, but I couldn't. For example, it took me more than 10 years to discern what vocation I would pursue, maybe journalism or English or law or maybe ministry. It was blurry to me. And I remember dating as a young adult and being unsure in the middle of a relationship, is this the person for me? And then there are other times in life when we'd rather not see. Blindness almost seems convenient sometimes. I remember on my first international mission trip to Guatemala, part of the group got up early one morning to visit the city dump where families actually lived as permanent residents of the dump. But some of us, including me, stayed behind at the hotel. I mean, really. If you went and you saw that, how could you ever unsee it? And once you've seen it, you don't have a choice. You have to live your life differently. There just isn't another option. Dr. Lena Place has been researching our church history in order to write a book about our first 100 years as a congregation. And most of what Lena discovers, brings all of us joy and delight, and we, we simply beam with remembering the faithfulness of our founding members. But we, like all disciples, have sometimes failed to see, and I mean we, like collectively. 
Lena unearthed an opinion piece written for the Santa Fe newspaper in 2018. Deborah Beagle was reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. When King was shot, Deborah was just 20 years old, a student at KU where she lived in the Kappa Alpha Theta house. That weekend though, in fact, the day after the assassination, she drove home to spend the weekend with her parents at her home with her parents in Mission Hills. When she walked in the door, her mom announced that she had a plan. On Sunday, she said, we're going to church, as they typically did, but this time they were going to invite House and his wife to come along with them. House was the black man who had tended to their yard on occasion when, when mom was busy or recovering from surgery or something, and so they all knew House. Deborah's mom thought inviting House and his wife to go to church with them would be a strong symbol of solidarity at a time when the whole country was reeling. And so on Sunday morning, House drove up in the front circle driveway of Deborah's home. He didn't come to the back door where he usually came in when he was working there. And then Deborah and her parents and House and his wife all got into Deborah's dad's car and, and they drove to their church. They drove to our church. They drove to Country Club Christian Church. Deborah's family loved this church. They always found that the sermons were really, really thought-provoking and inspiring and, and excellent for family discussions after church. They would start chatting all of a sudden on the way home from church about the message they had heard. But after church on this particular day, Deborah and her mom and dad and, and the house family, they got into the car with long, drawn, sad faces. Not one person in the church had greeted or welcomed house and his wife. They were completely ignored. And so on that day, they all got in the car and they drove home in silence. The original plan had been that they would eat lunch at Deborah's house and, and then in the afternoon, they would all get back in the car and go to House's church. But after the miserable experience in church that morning, they all agreed they would abandon the plan. How is it? We failed to see. How is it that we missed the chance to treat another person as a child of God? The good news, the good news that Mark proclaims is that Jesus heals us of our spiritual blindness. It doesn't always happen in an instant, but sometimes our vision remains blurry for a while. And Jesus persists. He reaches out again to the man and heals him until he can see clearly. And Mark tells us just a couple of chapters later of another healing of a blind man. This one who sees right away and takes up his mat and it says, and he followed Jesus on the way. It made a difference. He could see, and so he followed. This gradual sense of, of coming to see 
reminds me of Martin Niemöller. In the 1960s, Martin Niemöller spoke here in our sanctuary every night of Holy Week to a packed house. Historian Matthew Hokanos has written a book about Niemöller. It tells a little bit of a different story than what some of us have heard. When World War II broke out, Niemöller was a 41-year-old husband and father of six children. He pastored an influential church in the city of Berlin. After the war, after the Second World War, Niemöller became the president of the World Council of Churches, and his name was well known around the globe. In fact, there was a young foreign exchange student named Fritz Jeechmann who had come to live in Kansas City, and his father back in Germany had said, hey, Niemöller is traveling in the United States, and you should go and hear him. And so Fritz came here to our church to hear Niemöller one of those nights. And that's how he met his wife, Nancy. And Fritz and Nancy raised their family right here. And their son and their grandson are still active members. They usually sit right over there. You may not recognize this name, Martin Niemöller, but I wonder if maybe you've heard part of his story. Niemöller was a German submarine officer in the First World War. And after that first war, he was ordained as a Lutheran pastor in Germany, and he remained a staunch political conservative. He voted for the Nazi party not once, but twice. And he was actually enthusiastic about Hitler's rise, and he was drawn into Hitler's promise to awaken the church and build a unity of German Christians. It was not until 1937 that Niemöller began to defy Hitler and was then arrested for speaking out against Hitler's evil practices. For years, though, other Christians had spoke out against Hitler, and Niemöller had remained supportive. Finally, Niemöller could no longer abide Hitler's tactics of hate and lies, and for speaking in the pulpit a political word, he was then imprisoned for seven years. After the war, Martin Niemöller and his wife Elsie visited Dachau, and he wanted to show his wife the cell where he had spent four years as a prisoner near the end. He and his wife stood at the gate together, and they looked out at this plaque, and the plaque read, Here, Hitler exterminated 238,756 people between 1933 and 1945. And this sign jarred the conscience of Martin Niemöller. For then he realized that he himself had supported this evil regime for two years after the horrors of Dachau had begun. And it was this moment that prompted Niemöller to famously say, first they came for the communist, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. And then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. You know, I picture 
Martin Niemöller speaking here in our beautiful sanctuary with its shimmering stained glass blue wall. And, and I pictured Niemöller looking up there at Mark's window and seeing Jesus healing the blind man and realizing that over time, Jesus also healed Niemöller's blindness. What is it that you and I don't see? 